Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. To write the life of the pioneering early 20th century explorer Blair Niles, writer Jane Zangline traveled the world to over a dozen places, from Borneo to the Himalayas to French Guiana. Still, she found it challenging to find a publisher for her book. In our interview on March 18th via Zoom from her home in Western North Carolina, she talked about how she transcended that obstacle and found a home for The Girl Explorers, the untold story of the globe-trotting women who trekked, flew, and fought their way around the world from Sourcebooks in March 2021. Yeah, I had returned from a 10-week trip to Asia, which was uh, in part work, in part fun, and I, and I was getting ready to retire from teaching, and I was trying to think of what would I like to do, and uh, I've always written a lot. I, I remember sitting one time next to this woman on a plane, and she asked me what if I was writing a book, and I said, yeah. She said, well, what's it about? And I said, well, employee benefit law, and, and she said, oh, I just wrote a book about volcanoes and an expedition to uh, this volcano. And I'm like, oh, I want to write a real book. (laughs) It's not, it's not a less real book. It's just a very different book. Right. You know, but it does involve a lot of research to write nonfiction. And, and my research skills clearly helped me out. Yes. So, so from that time on the plane to today what ha- so were to the idea how did that how far in advance of your deciding you wanted to write a more popular book did did this come about oh like weeks i went home and i started researching and i found a male explorer that i really liked and then i i decided i heard about his wife blair niles and i said well that's it she's She's so cool. She has to be the one I write about. So that's what happened. So it really was uh, serendipitous that w- that woman on the plane kind of almost goaded along, if you believe that mystic <laughs> stuff, in, into your finding. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> Serendipity. So when you write about someone, how, how, so, okay, so there's the idea. It's planted. You knew that that was your person. Mm-hmm. Now walk us through what happened next because it doesn't just yeah you have to conjure up that person how did you conjure up the person well I was fortunate in that I was had just planned on retiring but my university allowed you to work one semester on one semester off for three years for half-time pay which is a really good deal so I decided I would you know, travel for half the year. And the other half of the year, I would do research from home. So I just started reading Blair Niles's books. And I was just astounded with how, um, how far ahead of her time she was, you know, she was born on a plantation, 
with freed slaves, and yet she became an advocate for the marginalized and oppressed. And that really stood out to me. She wrote books about um, the Amistad mutiny. She wrote books about Haiti under the Haitian occupation, the American occupation. And then she wrote, which was the clincher for me, she wrote a book about gay profiling in 1931 in Harlem. Yeah, so <laughs> I was, I couldn't let that go. It was just so exciting. So I started reading her books. And then I started doing research to find out how would I, uh, what archives were available to me that would have her material. So um, you, right, you immerse yourself in, in this case, you immerse yourself in the person first, and then you sort of fanned out to the wider implication of that moment in time. Yes, yes. Yeah. And were there archival papers available? I mean, had she left an archive? Well, I, I might have been more discouraged if I knew that she didn't. But um, she, she actually, she was a member of the Society of the Women Geographers, a founder. And I figured, oh, well, that's great. They'll have her archives, except they were missing. So I had to go through every other contemporary of hers to see if there were letters in those archives. And then, and then I found her ex-husband, William Beebe, he had his archives and some of her diaries were in there. And then um, that was at Princeton and then B Boston University had some uh, which had her letters, which were included in William Beebe's second wife's archives. And then Harry Ransom uh, at the University of Texas had the archives of one of the prisoners that she wrote about in French Guiana. And so then I went there. So yeah, it was a lot of piecemeal. Right. Right, which in some ways is more fun than when you have to just go to the same place for a month yeah. and immerse. For, for an explorer, I would think it's a really, yeah, it's an expedition in itself. But let's step back to, I, um, I know, obviously, that women were marginalized. It had never occurred to me that they would be marginalized in the explorer world. So can you talk a little bit about that and how these women formed this group because they weren't allowed to be part of the male group. Yes. Um, well, in 1925, this was after Blair had gone on a round the world expedition with her ex-husband, 50,000 miles hunting pheasants. Um, and uh, and she, she had recently come back from a trip to Haiti. She had now divorced William Beebe and had remarried like within days after her divorce. Uh, what an interesting side note is I found out that a lot of the members of the Society of Women Geographer divorced. It was very common, you know, among them, not so common in society. She had to, to take a train called the Reno Special from Manhattan <laughs> to, to go to Reno to get her divorce. Reno was but, the hot um, then, yes, yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> in 1925, um, she was having lunch with a friend of hers, Marguerite Harrison. Marguerite Harrison was a woman who worked for the Baltimore 
um, uh, newspaper, the Baltimore Sun. And Marguerite was complaining that she had, she had just got back from Persia where she followed a, a tribe of Bakhtiari tribe people to their summer winter, the summer pastures across Iran. So uh, it was a, a very big expedition and it was the subject of the second documentary ever made. Nanook of the North was the first one and Grass was the second one. And so she, she and Blair were talking and they were just so excited to have a comrade that they could you know, talk freely with each other. And so uh, Marguerite, who had been, in, she had been a, um, an American spy working in Soviet un Union and she had been captured and she um, was talking about her time in Lubyanka prison and how reporters just wanted to know, did you wear makeup? Did you curl your hair? And Blair, um, Blair said the, the same type of things, you know, they, they just want to know if you have a love interest. They don't care that you just went on this big expedition. So at, almost at the same moment, I can envision them raising their teacups and saying, we need a society that will allow us to uh, commune with each other. And they had recently been banned by the all-male Explorers Club. And so um, this was foremost on their mind and, and they got together and they added a couple people to their little group and started inviting women. And soon they had a couple hundred explorers. So it was rare, but it wasn't so unusual that there weren't, there wasn't company, so to speak. Oh yeah, yeah there were, there were a lot of explorers. And I think one of the misconceptions is that first women always traveled with their husbands which wasn't the case. Now Blair had done that in the beginning, but she wasn't doing that now. And, um, and Mar Marguerite was a widower. She traveled with her 13 year old son to Germany and Russia. And, <laughs> and so um, a lot of these women were single. They were another, um, uh, misconception was that they never went to any place unless it was so-called civilized, you know, they didn't go to the jungles. Um, and of course, they went all over to places that people had never gone to before. One of the members traveled um, uh, throughout Africa in a car in the 1930s. She drove alone, she had no guide, no one to help her with, her, her car kept on breaking down and she, uh, she eventually um, wore out three cars on the expedition. Four years, three cars, got stuck in all kinds of places, kind of like one of those Acme cartoons, you know, where she's on a, a swing bridge and the car falls through <laughs> and get stuck between boulders. <laughs> and she had to climb at night into trees so that uh, lions didn't get her. Yeah, so these were amazing women. 
this isn't this isn't a single woman going glamping today or you know going on one of those women single solo women travelers are welcome here on Tahiti in some fabulous resort this was and this was a time when you didn't you know you were out of touch when you traveled right it wasn't like now you have a you know well not now but pre-pandemic right with your iPhone and uh, making your connections on the fly as you <laughs> barrel through airports right it's that's the, I had to keep reminding myself when I've yeah <laughs> so that's an added layer it wasn't just the women's place in society but it was the technology that didn't exist that made it even more all the more estimable what they were doing. And I think one of the other things that really struck me, because we don't think about it quite so much today, we worry about sexual harassment and assault, but we didn't, we don't really think of the, the effect of our reputation of being around men on an expedition. And these women, what I, what I found really fascinating is that until the 1940s, you know, Ann Landers would say, um, you have to have a man. With, you, you cannot be alone with a man. You have to have a chaperone. Right, right. Societal norms were so different about how women should be, how people should behave, not just women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting. You know, do you think that this book, if somebody, if you, you or someone else had uh, decided to, to write this book 20 years ago, um, how, I know it's, I hate those kinds of questions, but I also think it's interesting. We're at such a different moment in time where we're recognizing previously marginalized people in history. It's interesting to imagine how your book would have been different 20, even, I mean, 20, 40 years ago. Absolutely. That's true. And I, th I think that, um, that certainly motivates an interest in the book. And um, it also made it a little bit easier to re research some of the other members of the society because so many um, exhibition, museum exhibitions are focused on these women now where we had no idea who they were 10 years ago. Um, one of my favorite um, artists um, was uh, Else Bostelman. She was this scientific artist that went down and sat on the bottom of the ocean in a diving helmet, like a copper diving helmet um, that was attached to a motor on board a, uh, a, a rowboat. And she would paint these underwater scenes with oil paints because oil and water don't mix. And so she was able to paint underwater. Um, and and uh, an oceanographer recently, a, a woman recently found her, um, a collection of her paintings and some of her works and did a um, exhibition. Um, another artist was Malvina Hoffman who traveled around the world um, sculpting images, life-size images of people from around the world for a field museum in Chicago, their exhibition called um, The Racism Mankind. And so she traveled for a couple of years uh, sculpting all these people and then 
came back to Chicago and held this exhibition, which, which continued for another 40 years until the 1970s when it was attacked as racist. Um, and so now they recently came up with a new exhibition asking visitors to contemplate, is it racist today? Um, and was it racist then? So yeah, so quite a few of those serendipitous moments. And while you're speaking, I'm thinking about you as a lawyer, having mm -hmm. retired fairly recently as an educator, um, you know, that, that was a profession too that wasn't easily accessible to women at a certain point, right? Easily, right. certainly the qualifications and the education. So I wonder if while writing this book, you thought at all about these stories from the lens of a woman who was working in a profession that was once a largely male That's profession. true. Yeah, yeah. The law was clearly a male profession when I went into it. It had just recently started to become a, a profession and that women felt comfortable. Yeah, I, I thought back, I remember very clearly this time I was writing for a social studies class and reading about these bra burning women and, you know, and thinking, well, why don't, doesn't every woman want to go into a profession and do the same thing and be treated equally as, as men? So yes, that, it was a common thought in my mind. Yeah, yeah, I would think it would be hard to set, you know, and, and to imagine too today, a woman just starting out reading these stories. Um, I wonder if they they don't see them as extreme, or certainly the context that you offer is extreme, and it, it explains it. But the idea that uh, women today don't feel that that oppression that our generation did, you know. Well, yeah. And I think they're starting to, you know, when I read the reports of uh, Cuomo and, and, I, and I think, I think that's so horrible that it happened. Um, but it is enlightening young women that this is the way it is and has been. And this is what we faced, you know, 40 years ago when we were starting our career. I, I used to teach at law school. And I would be stunned by young women who had no sense of the discrimination that women felt not that long ago. That long ago, yeah. 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 Of course, the Me Too movement has, has helped shed light on that, but I, I tend to wonder- If people are having the conversation as a result of something bad having happened, for sure, for yeah. sure. When, what, what were the biggest challenges for you in, in writing this book? And what was the length of time from that aha moment, I'm going to do this to having it out in your hands right now? Well, it was about four years till it was published. And uh, probably the most challenging part of it was that even though Blair was an incredibly accomplished woman who, who, who divorced her husband after 11 years of marriage, he still hung as this shadow over her. And that was in part because 
many of the members of the Society of Women Geographers worked with him and he had affairs with many of them. And so I had this intense desire to learn more about him. And, and my husband would keep on saying, who are you writing about, Blair or Will? You know, And I'm like, but the two are so intertwined. You can't help um, but talk about them together in some respects. And, and they're, they're not, and, and they're in, in rather negative ways, right? She, I admire her because she divorced him. Um, and he was so despicable in many ways. He's like a character you love to hate because he's just so awful, but he's a hero. He's a hero. He's regarded as a hero because he, you know, the public loved him, NBC broadcasters, radio, dis by radio, his descent into the ocean in this steel ball. He's just an amazing character, but he has so many flaws. So that to me was the hardest part. Well, and that is, you raise such a really interesting question because when we write biography, it's never as simple as one person. There are so many people who make up any of us good yeah. and bad and acknowledging them, how to, how to write those shadowy characters, whether they're shadowy literally or figuratively mm -hmm. or both is, is a complication. And coming up with the structure of a story is one sort of difficulty, but then coming up with how to integrate the other people. I wrote a book about Joan Croc, but I wound up having to write about Ray Croc because right. Joan Croc wouldn't be somebody I would have written about if it wasn't. And, you know, he was a similarly bad guy, notorious mm -hmm. guy, but she got all his money and did amazing things with it. So it was, um, I know exactly what you, what you mean. And right. And that's a current dialogue, too, is how do we deal with somebody who's venerated for one thing when we find out that there's bad behavior behind the note, noteworthy or newsworthy behavior? I think that publishers are attracted to books about women, mm -hmm. even if they aren't necessarily, you know, figures who are well known, like Eleanor Roosevelt, etc. But um, was that a challenge without a without um a prominent male figure in all of this, or was it just a challenge period or how, how was it received? Well, I, I would say it was received very well. I didn't have a whole lot of problems. I found a, an agent very quickly. Um, and then she within an extremely short period of time found a, a publisher. The publisher first rejected it um, because they didn't want to do a um, biography of one woman. They wanted the focus to be on the Society of Women Geographers. Mm -hmm. So then I had to reorganize the book. I mean, you know, of course, at first I'm like, yeah, but Blair's so interesting. So that was when I decided I would uh, write the biography of the Society from Blair's viewpoint. Oh, I'm glad I'm glad you shared that because I think it's important for people to hear that we have I did the same thing with Joan. I couldn't sell the book about Joan, but once I introduced Ray into the mix, mm -hmm. I had no problem selling it. 
So yeah, that's interesting. And there are people who wouldn't bend like, you know, to do what you did or I did, but I wanted that story out. And I, if that was the only way I was going to get it published by a, you know, publisher, I was going to do it. So yeah. Yeah. And it didn't hurt that, um, the publisher is 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 the largest female-owned publisher. So actually, I get give credit to my agent, Amy Bishop. She immediately, as soon as I came up with a, a modified book proposal, she sent it to Sourcebooks again, and within days they accepted it. So it was absolutely the correct thing to do. That's Jane Zangline, speaking via Zoom from Western North Carolina about her new book from Sourcebooks, The Girl Explorers, the untold story of the globe-trotting women who trekked, flew, and fought their way around the world. To hear more conversations with biographers or to learn more about bio, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio. Bio.